Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 30, Exodus chapters 31 and 32. Well, we're going to continue our study of Exodus 31 this week with the section beginning in verse 12 concerning the Sabbath in Hebrew, Shabbat. How appropriate. Let's, uh, let's read this rather short section tonight um, to kind of refresh our memories. We're going to read from Exodus 31, verse 12 to the end. Exodus 31, verse 12 to the end of that chapter. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, you are to observe my Shabbats, for this is a sign between me and you through all your generations, so that you will know that I am Adonai who sets you apart for me. Therefore you are to keep my Shabbat, because it's set apart for you. Everyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death. For whoever does any work on it is to be cut off from his people. On six days work will get done, but the seventh day is Shabbat for complete rest set apart for Adonai. Whoever does any work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat throughout all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the people of Israel forever, for in six days... Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh he stopped working and rested. When he had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, Adonai gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. The Sabbath is God's law about observing sacred time. Just as the tabernacle is God's law about observing sacred space. Now this may sound a little philosophical rather than spiritual, but it is truly not. Okay, let me explain, so hang in there with me as this might seem complex, but it really isn't. A scientist would rightly say that we live in a universe that consists only of space and time. Okay. Space consists of three dimensions. Time is one more dimension, giving us a total of four. So the first three dimensions, space, are very easy to grasp because we can simply Look at the room in which we meet, this space that we've acquired for us to congregate, and see it has length, width, and height. What's not so easy to grasp, though, is time. See, we can't see time. We can't touch it. But we can observe its effects. It's especially observable to me every morning in my mirror. Because I look at this wrinkling face with a ring of gray hair around the crown of my head, 
and ask, who is that? I mean, that image sure doesn't look like what my mind expects to see. I don't feel like that guy in that mirror looks. All right, aging is the effect of time. But what is time? Just as an inch or a meter is a measurement of the first three dimensions that we talked about, time is actually a measurement of decay, as expressed in the second law of thermodynamics. All physical things decay, but they decay at differing rates. Time measures the rate of decay. A rock decays a lot slower than a human. But not all rocks decay at the same rate. And for that matter, not all humans decay at the same rate. Okay. In fact, our most accurate time-measuring devices, atomic clocks, actually use the nearly perfectly steady rate of decay of certain atomic particles to make them work. No, this isn't a science lesson. It's a lesson to help us understand at least part of God's rationale behind Sabbath. Since our God created a universe of four dimensions consisting of time and space, so he has ordained a means of enshrining the holiness of all those four dimensions of his creation. The tabernacle is representative of the three dimensions of space. The Sabbath is representative of that fourth dimension, time. God sanctifies the tabernacle by setting it apart from all other human space. And he dwells in it. And he sanctifies the Sabbath. He sanctifies the Sabbath by setting it apart from all other blocks of time. And he declares this specific block of time, Shabbat, to be holy. No other piece of space at the time of Moses and then for several hundred more years was set apart as holy to embody the holiness of space and no other block of time has ever been set apart as holy for the purpose of embodying the holiness of time. Certainly other blocks of time, other days, have been ordained and set aside to honor other things that God wants honored, you know, biblical feasts, for example. But none of those things had the specific purpose of honoring God's creation of time. So the Sabbath is God's designated day to give tangible glory to his creation of the fourth dimension, time. Together with the, together, The tabernacle and the Sabbath enshrine the holiness of God's creation. Now, keeping this in mind, let's see what we can glean from these last few verses of chapter 31 about the Sabbath, about this this, this holy block of time 
Okay. The ending words of verse 13 is another of those interesting but usually overlooked little phrases that carries a large meaning. All right. And the significance of it is explained in verse 14. At the end of verse 13, it says, So that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Your Bible version may say, sanctifies you or consecrates or some such thing in place of holy, but it's all the same thing. Okay. The word holy or sanctify is translated from the Hebrew root word kadash, K-A-D-A-S-H, kadash, which indeed means holy or to be holy. Okay. To be set apart, which is what the English word sanctified means, to be set apart. But pay attention to what God seems to be saying here. He says that the purpose for Israel keeping the Sabbath is what? To make them, to make you, holy. Now that is no small thing, and it carries with it rather large implications. In verse 14, there is another interesting phrase that works in conjunction with the one we just looked at in verse 13. And it is most meaningful if we accept what it means in its most literal sense, which is usually always the best way to study the Bible. It starts out like this. Keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Now, what I want to look at is the word that is translated holy in this verse. In other words, verse 14. Not verse 13 now, verse 14. In Hebrew, the word used here is kodesh. K-O-D-E-S-H. The previous was what? Kadash. K-A-D-A-S-H. Okay. Now, even though kodesh is taken from the root word, kadesh, it has a slightly different meaning, as you can imagine. Kodesh does not mean holy. This is poor scholarship. In Hebrew, kadash means holy. So if kodesh, which is the word used here in verse 14, doesn't mean holy, what does it mean? It means holiness. Holiness. Most literally, this verse reads, keep the Sabbath because it's holiness for you. Hmm. So what's the difference? Am I splitting hairs? No. The way it is normally translated in verse 14, the way it's typically translated in most of our Bibles is, it's got this sense to it. I want you to keep the Sabbath because I made it holy and therefore you're to consider it holy and you're to observe it because it's a holy day. Right? I mean, that's how we see it. But that's not really the meaning. There's a little more nuance to that. Here's what it does mean. God is saying, I want you to keep the Sabbath because not only did I declare it holy, but the Sabbath clothes you in a state of holiness. Holiness. 
The Sabbath clothes you in a state of holiness in my eyes when you obey me and observe it. That's what it means. Well, this is a little different. The first way is, I want you to do this because I made the Sabbath holy and I want you to respect the holiness of the Sabbath. The second way is, by observing the Sabbath, you take on the holiness of the Sabbath. It's the holiness of the Sabbath that when imputed upon you, transmitted to you, makes you holy too. So verse 13 says, I'm going to make you holy. And verse 14 says, I'm going to do that by transmitting the holiness inherent in my Sabbath to you if you obey and observe my Sabbath. Now this concept really shouldn't sound strange to us at all. Okay? Because if we're told that in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must be righteous according to God's standard, but it's utterly impossible for a man to attain that state of saving righteousness on our own, then what do we do? By faith in Yeshua, we are clothed in his righteousness. Right? Yeshua's righteousness is imputed to us. Yeshua's righteousness is transmitted to us. God is laying out the principle right here in Exodus that by means of his grace he will impute upon Israel, he will assign to Israel a state of holiness that can't be achieved any other way. Now this also goes a long way towards helping us to understand what Christ really meant when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, he was saying that it wasn't necessary for the creation of man in order to bring holiness to the Sabbath. It was necessary that the Sabbath be created in order that holiness might be brought to man. The seriousness of the Sabbath ordinance is underlined when verse 14 continues by saying that whoever profanes the Sabbath is to be cut off. They are to be separated from God. Cut off can mean that they are destined to die short of a normal lifespan. Or it can mean, like in this instance, that, that they are to be executed for failure to observe the Sabbath. And later in Torah, we'll get an example or two of the death sentence being applied to someone who did not properly observe Sabbath. Okay, how long is this Sabbath ordinance to last? Verse 16 says, perpetually, forever. God says the Sabbath is a sign, a sign between he and Israel. In Hebrew, the word for sign is ot, O-W-T-H, ot. And the sense of the word is that it's an affirmation. It's a proof. It's a mark of distinction. The Sabbath is a mark of distinction that sets the relationship between God and Israel apart from everybody else. 
And further on in verse 16, he makes this connection between the creation of the universe, which we spoke of at the beginning of our lesson, and the observance of Shabbat. Now let me see if I can illustrate something for you. Touchy subject. I said that the Sabbath is a very specific block of time. What block of time does the Bible lay out in all instances is that block of time, the seventh day. It's set apart from all other blocks of time to embody the holiness of time as the fourth dimension of God's creation. I was born on November the 26th. So my birthday is on November the 26th every year, hopefully. But, you know, what if I decided that I just preferred to remember my birthday on March the 15th? How about if when March the 15th came around, I declared that in my home, this is November the 26th? My birthday. Well, while there's certainly no law against it, with an equal certainty, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? All right? And it sort of ruins the whole purpose of having a birthday. March 15th is not November 26th, no matter how you cut it. Each day, each of them are very specific and separate days. Friends, the Bible, not me, the Holy Scriptures defines Sabbath as the seventh day. I didn't do it. The set-apart, sanctified block of time that the Lord has established as representative of the fourth dimension of his creation is the seventh day of his seven-day week. It's not any block of time that we choose. We can no more choose our own definition of Sabbath than we can choose our own definition of Messiah. God is now through for the time being with giving Moses and the people of Israel his ordinances and his principles. And so Jehovah inscribes on two stone tablets, supernaturally, by his own hand, the principles from which all law, ordinance, appointed times, festivals, observances, rituals, even the sacrificial system is going to be based. So we've now, at this point, as we end chapter 31... We have now completed four of the six divisions of Exodus and are ready to begin the fifth division, which the scholar Everett Fox calls infidelity and reconciliation. Okay. Let's move on to chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. long chapter, but we're going to go ahead and read it all, start to finish. When the people saw that Moses was taking a long time to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Get busy and make us a god to go ahead of us. Because this Moses, the man that brought us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Okay, have your wives, sons and daughters strip off their gold earrings and bring them to me. The people stripped off their gold earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he received what they gave him, melted them down, made it into the shape of a calf. And they said, 
Israel, here is your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. And on seeing this, Aaron built an altar in front of it. And he proclaimed, tomorrow is going to be a feast for Adonai. And early the next morning, they got up and offered burnt offerings and presented peace offerings. And afterwards, the people sat down to eat and drank. Then they got up to indulge in revelry. Adonai said to Moses, go down, hurry, your people, whom you brought from the land of Egypt, have become corrupt. So quickly they have turned aside from the way I've ordered them to follow. They have cast a metal statue of a calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed to it and said, Israel, here's your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. Adonai continued speaking to Moses. I've been watching these people and you can see how stiff-necked they are. Now leave me alone so that my anger can blaze against them and I can put an end to them. I'll make a great nation out of you instead. Moses pleaded with Adonai as God. He said, Adonai, why must your anger blaze against your own people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say it was with evil intentions that he led them out to slaughter them in the hills and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Don't bring such disaster on your people. Remember, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your very self. You promised them, I will make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. I will give all this land I've spoken about to your descendants. They'll possess it forever. Adonai then changed his mind about the disaster he had planned for his people. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets inscribed on both sides, on the front, on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Yahshua, Joshua, heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, It sounds like a war down in the camp. He answered, there is neither, That is neither the clamor of victory nor the wailings of defeat. What I hear is the sound of people singing. But the moment Moses got near the camp, when he saw the calf and the dancing, his own anger blazed up. He threw down the tablets he had been holding and he shattered them at the base of the mountain, seizing the calf they had made. He melted it in the fire and he ground it to powder, which he scattered on the water. Then he made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, Why did the, what did these people do to you to make you lead them into such terrible sin. Aaron replied, My Lord shouldn't be so angry. You, you know what these people are like. That they're determined to do evil. So they said to me, Make us gods to go ahead of us. Because this, this Moshe, the man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I answered them, Anyone with gold, strip it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. Ooh, out came this calf. <laughs> When Moses saw that the people had gotten out of control because Aaron had allowed them to get out of control to the derision of their enemies, Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and shouted, Whoever is for Adonai, come to me. All the descendants of Levi rallied around him. He told them, here's what Adonai, the God of Israel, says, each of you. 
put his sword on his side and go up and down the camp from gate to gate and every man is to kill his own kinsman, his own friend, his own neighbor. The sons of Levi did what Moses said and that day 3,000 of his people died. Moses said, you have consecrated yourselves today to Adonai because every one of you has been against his own son and against his own kinsman in order to bring a blessing on yourselves today. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin. Now I will go back up to Adonai and maybe I'll be able to atone for your sin. Moses went back to Adonai and said, please, these people have committed a terrible sin. They have made themselves a god out of gold. Now, if you will just forgive their sin, but if you won't, then I beg you, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Adonai answered Moses, those who have sinned against me are the ones I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I told you about. My angel will go ahead of you. Nevertheless, the time for punishment will come, and I will punish them for their sin. Adonai struck the people with a plague because they had made that calf, the one Aaron made. Very dramatic chapter. Chapter 32, obviously, is about the infamous golden calf incident. And the key to understanding the scriptures about the golden calf is that Israel was breaking the Mosaic Covenant at the very same moment is, uh, Moses was up on the mountaintop receiving it. Now remember, this is a conditional covenant. Israel has its obligations to keep because the covenant has stipulations about what happens if they don't. God sees what Israel did by building that calf as adultery. Therefore, infidelity. Why adultery? Because they were supposed to be in union with him and they brought another God into the picture. Now it's chapters like these that mark the Bible as the most remarkable piece of literature, obviously it's far more than mere literature, in all of mankind's history. God has set apart a people from all other people in the world to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to him. And then, rather than try to paint Israel now, somehow, let's say, better than other humans, less susceptible to doing wrong and evil, above all the temptations of sin and immorality, a bunch of people that just whistle a happy tune and go about God's business praising him all the live long day, we're shown the reality of the human condition. Okay. Our fickleness, our selfish, rebellious natures are vividly on display here in this chapter as a stark contrast to God's character and to his expectations of us. For the last several weeks of our study of Exodus, it's as though we've been eavesdropping on God's conversations with Moses. From on high... At the summit of Mount Sinai, all that is good and true and perfect, the heavenly spiritual ideal has been spoken and explained to Moses. Well, back at the ranch, 
the reality of everyday physical life as it conflicts with God's standards greets us head on. And we shouldn't sidestep the irony here. During the very time God is lowering himself to send a love letter to the human to, to humanity that beckons the Hebrews to reconciliation with him, the people of Israel are scheming to do the very things God is prohibiting. Translation? Yeah, we know there's a God. We know he's loving and powerful. We know he has standards of good and evil, right and wrong. But you know what? We're just kind of anxious and stressed today. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. Thank you very much. Boy, is that human, huh? Now, the first few verses of chapter 32 set about explaining the people's rationale for breaking the second commandment. The one that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, you're not to make a carved image. And basically that rationale is that they're impatient and they're a little bit afraid right now. They want answers. They want these answers now. Now, of course, I think that a couple weeks ago it hit many of us squarely between the eyes that adultery was also at the heart of the Israelites' great offense against God in doing this. Adultery because what the Mosaic Covenant created was a union between Israel and Yehovah. And by mixing the union with Yehovah with the worship of the calf, by bringing another god into the picture, that union became corrupted and defiled. Actually, the union got broken at that moment. And whom did the Israelites recruit to lead them into this worst of all possible offenses against God, but the man who is about to become their first high priest? Moses' second in command. The one who bore the staff of Moses spoke the miracles of God before Pharaoh, Moses' own brother, Aaron. And one could roll around the floor in laughter if it wasn't so tragic. Okay. We're told that Aaron agreed to build for Israel a God image. And he instructed the people to give him the gold from their earrings. Now I'm not sure what significance there is to it that it was only earrings from which the gold was gathered, but one thing's for sure. That would have been a lot of earrings. So an awful lot of people agreed with what they were about to do. Once the calf was made, just what did the Hebrews think they had done? I mean, what was it, actually, that they thought that they had made and just whom did that calf represent? The answer is in the last few words of verse 4 and then on into verse 5, where it says, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron announced that tomorrow they would build an altar. What do we do with an altar? Sacrifice an animal. Right? And so they would sacrifice an animal to the golden calf, and then they'd hold a festival to God. This has led many a commentator to suggest that the Israelites had an entirely different Lord on their minds when they said Lord. 
in this. One of their old Egyptian gods, probably. But the original Hebrew doesn't say Lord. It doesn't say Adonai. It says yud Hey vav Hey. God's name. The people thought they were making a suitable image of yud Hey vav Hey. Oh my gosh. By the way, maybe we all better examine the images and icons we use. Because there's a ton of them. I'm not at all comfortable that our rationale for using them makes it right in God's eyes. Now, there's so many lessons just under the surface here. And we can spend an awful lot of time with them, so I'm just going to outline a couple of them for you. First, the golden calf itself was a common animal image used by almost every Middle Eastern culture at that time. In Egypt, it was called the Apis Bull, a very high deity indeed. It represented strength and authority, and the Hebrews would have been more than familiar with it. Now, we can't know for absolute sure that it was the Egyptian apis that they used as a model for the golden calf. It could have been some other Middle Eastern bull god they used as a model. But it really doesn't much matter. The point is that despite the incredible miracles they had personally witnessed, after hearing God's own voice tell them his Ten Commandments, At the first sign of trouble, their instinct was not to believe God. Not to trust Him. Not to be obedient to Him, but rather to behave as they always had. The funny thing is, had worshipping other gods back in Egypt ever liberated them from Egypt or brought them anything good? Apparently not. Because they were slaves for about two centuries when God rescued them. But it didn't matter. They just went right back to what was familiar and they turned their backs on what was good. Now, people haven't changed much, have we? When push comes to shove, we tend to fall back on what is traditional and what's comfortable. We love the things we're familiar with, the things that seem to validate the lifestyle we've chosen for ourselves. We'll compromise, we'll rationalize God's principles in a heartbeat if it satisfies our emotions and our wants. I've heard it said that the true definition of insanity is believing that if you keep doing the same things, you'll eventually get different results. There's not one of us hearing this lesson that doesn't have to fight daily the urge to hang on to, to return to our old ways, even though we know the truth. Second, why did the people feel they needed a God image at all? I mean, what's the big attraction here? Interestingly, it's the human need for visible, tangible evidence of God's presence that drove them to do this horrible deed. And it's for that same human need, this need we have to see it with our own eyes, 
that God was in the process of providing that means in the form of the tabernacle. God knew and he knows that we need visible reassurance and evidence of his divine workings in our lives. Israel needed it. God never needed an earthly tabernacle. Israel needed it. And he certainly didn't need human hands to have one built. The tabernacle, like almost all else, was for Israel's sake and our sake, not his. The tabernacle was, remember, a physical demonstration, a physical enshrinement of some heavenly principles, particularly the enshrinement of God's principle of sacred space. Three of the dimensions of the creation. Now there is a parallel, a link, between the golden calf and the tabernacle as they both were intended to satisfy man's need to have visible proof of God's presence. It might do us well to think of the golden calf as the sort of anti-tabernacle. The golden calf is man's perverse idea of deity. It was made from Israel's best and most sincere religious imaginings and efforts. Conversely, the tabernacle was God's heavenly model. It was God-ordained, but it would also come in God's timing, not theirs. Man-ordained versus God-ordained. This is the battle humanity has been in practically since the moment of creation. And it's going to go on until the end of the millennial reign in the future. Probably within some of our lifetimes, we're going to see this battle played out in most dramatic fashion. In the finale of the history of the world as we watch mankind install the Antichrist as the head of the world government to rule over us. And why will man install him? For the same reason that the Israelites molded their image. Impatience, fear, anxiety, the need for visible proof that God is present. Already the world is crying out for somebody to build a new golden calf. To do something to stop the violence, anything to stop the terror that has gripped the world, but there doesn't seem to be at the moment any solution. And soon, very soon, I believe, that the apostate portion of the church is going to join the effort of the world, if not lead the way to identify and install the end times golden calf. And just as in Moses' day this is going to occur, just as God is in the process of readying the world for a visible display of his true presence in the form of Messiah, that it will be in his timing. Sadly, we already know from the Bible primarily revelation, that most of the world and all but a remnant of believers are not going to wait for God's solution. We're going to take matters into our own hands with devastating results. 
That's what Israel did when they built that golden calf. Now, beginning in verse 7, God informs Moses, and I love this, what your people are doing. And if you notice a little later, he tries to give it back. Oh, God, don't, don't destroy your people. I mean, we got to, you know, you know, giving it back and forth here. I think it's kind of funny that God calls Israel your people, because in a way, for a moment there, it seems that God disowned them because he had been calling them up till now my people. And guess what? To a degree, that's exactly what he did. The covenant was broken. Moses would demonstrate that when he got back down to the valley floor. Further, it would be then necessary, because it was broken, to reestablish it which we're also going to find Moses do in a little while, as he fashions two more blank stone tablets and hauls them back up to the summit of Mount Sinai. And as the Lord is instructing Moses, he says to Moses, hurry back down the mountain and put a stop to that calf worship. And by the way, Moses, while you're gone, I'm going to sit here and think of all the ways that I can destroy those stiff-necked people. In fact, I think I'll just start all over again with you is a new father of a special people for me. And Moses, of course, in a very noble gesture, pleads for mercy for those Israelites, and God relents. Now, a couple of things to think about. Was God going back and forth here? I mean, was he indecisive? No, I think I'll destroy him. Ah, maybe I won't. Yeah, I think I won't. All right, no, of course not. As always, he's in teaching mode. The Lord's in Torah mode. He's showing Moses just how serious disobedience to the Almighty can be. He's showing Moses that indeed those people are his responsibility. He's demonstrating that it didn't have to be Israel that's his chosen people. It could have been anybody he selected. Moses, in the position of its mediator, is the one who bears on his shoulders the sins of what is now described as your people, Moses, Because the covenant that makes Israel God's people at that moment was invalidated. Now, in something akin to an episode of Seinfeld, here are the people of Israel, down at the foot of the mountain, partying like mad, worshiping and sacrifices to this golden calf, just so proud of their little selves for solving their own problems. Well, at that very moment, God is telling Moses that by the time he gets back down there, these people are probably going to become little piles of human toast anyway. And these foolish, rebellious Hebrews have absolutely no idea that their fate is being decided upon that summit as they go on in their blissful ignorance down below. Now, I also think... That Moses yet had, uh, really had yet to grasp his own importance in the Lord's eyes, as well as in the eyes of the people. Moses had always been reluctant about taking this job in the first place. He was a very humble man. He was an introvert. He had a hard time understanding why people would even think to look upon him as a leader. But as we saw when God spoke the Ten Commandments by means of a 
thunderous and frightening sound directly to the people of Israel, their response was generally, whoa, that was really cool. Now please don't ever do it again. Moses, you go talk to God for us and have him talk to you. They were certain if they were ever again in God's presence or ever heard his voice like that, they'd die. And they saw Moses as the one and only channel between them and the Lord, which of course is the very definition of what he indeed was, their mediator. The people of Israel depended on Moses as that mediator. And after a considerable time, when he hadn't come back down that mountain, they did what people do when leadership vanishes. They panicked. When they didn't see what they expected to see, when they expected to see it, they lost faith. The result was the golden calf. You know, I'm not sure I've ever made a good decision when I was in panic mode. Which is one reason why God constantly reminds us to fear not. Because fear leads us to poor judgment and irrational behavior. Now as Moses was making his way back down that mountain, who does he run into? But Joshua. The same Joshua that eventually take over for Moses. Apparently Joshua went part way up the mountain with Moses and then stayed and waited for him. Because Joseph, uh, rather Joshua didn't really seem to know what was going on back at the encampment. But he could hear all the ruckus, and he knew something not good was happening. And Joshua says, Moses, I think there's a war going on. And Moses replies, no, Joshua, they're just having a giant block party. Moses finally gets to see what's happening, and it infuriates him as he's never been before. He takes those tablets, he throws them on the ground, they explode into hundreds of pieces. He took the calf, had it melted down, ground to dust, sprinkled it into their drinking water, and then made the people of Israel drink it. This act of breaking the tablets tablets was significant. In the Middle East, whenever a covenant was made, written down, and then violated, the clay tablets it was typically written on were ceremonially thrown down and shattered to signify that indeed the covenant was broken. It was no more. So this wasn't so much a moment of rage in which Moses just lost lost it for a second and doing so threw down the tablets of the law and then went, "Uh uh-oh, whoops, look what happened to him. It was a custom. And the people of Israel knew immediately what it meant when he did that. The hours-old covenant with God was broken, gone already. Moses asks Aaron in verse 21, What happened that you would have, that would make you agree, Aaron, to do such a thing as build that idol? And Aaron's answer is, they asked me to do it. Peer pressure. Social pressures. Family pressures. A desire to be all things to all people in place of godly leadership. Do I please God? Do I please my friends? Aaron chose unwisely. 
Then Moses threw down the gauntlet. He called to all those who stand with him, and in so doing stand with God. He says, come to me. And Moses is doing what God demonstrated to us since the moment he separated darkness from light. He divides and separates to create unity. I know that this principle that God divides flies in the face of the typical modern day church doctrine that all God does is unite. But the unity at any cost doctrine simply doesn't square with Holy Scripture. Primarily because it's too simplistic. God divides and separates in order to achieve unity. My goodness, here in Exodus, he is well into the process of dividing Israel, setting Israel apart from the rest of the world as his people. And here in Exodus 32, we have Moses dividing and separating the people of Israel in order to achieve God's kind of unity. Division, separation, election are God's ways to achieve ideal unity. Sadly, the world and too much of the church have fallen into the trap that defines unity as a compromise in order to achieve consensus. God's unity has nothing to do with consensus or unanimity or conformance and most certainly not with compromise. Unity is oneness in his spirit. It was the Levites, those destined to be priests and attendants to God, who rallied around Moses. Now please remember, at this point, the priesthood has not yet been established. These Levites who came to Moses were not declared priests yet. But we don't have to work too hard to figure out why, even from a purely human standpoint, at this moment, it would be only the Levites who rallied around Moses. He was kin. Moses was a Levite. And by means of his current station, he was the head of the Levite tribe. This is the essence of tribalism. Blood is thicker than water, or anything else for that matter. Each of the Levites took a sword and went about killing 3,000 of the calf worshippers. And the wording makes it appear they must have killed not only Levites, but non-Levites as well, who had succumbed to the idol worship. And then in verse 29, Moses makes a startling statement to those who had just done the killing. He says, by sparing not even your own sons, this has consecrated you to God. That is, given the choice between obeying God and executing your own child for idolatry at his command, you chose obedience to God above your own desires. That sets you apart. These Levites at this moment were divided away from the rest of Israel. Consecrated, that's what he says. You're now consecrated. This, pretty soon now, in Exodus, we're going to see, will be confirmed in a formal ceremony. By the way, 
the Levites are an interesting contradiction in character. Okay, back in Genesis, when Jacob was pronouncing his deathbed blessing upon his children, he told Simeon and Levi that violence would follow them. But he also told them something else that was now coming true. Let me, you don't turn there, but in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, it says this. Shimon and Levi are brothers related by weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men. At their whim they maimed cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it has been fierce. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. It was Levi and Shimon, Simeon, who led that raid on that helpless city of Shechem in revenge for the king's son raping Jacob's daughter, their sister, Dinah. They slaughtered all the males, killed the cattle, made slaves of the women and children who were spared. And as a result of this atrocity, Jacob said that Simeon and Levi would find their destinies as constantly dealing in blood and violence. But Jacob pronounced even more than that as concerning those two sons. And here the meaning of, I will divide them in Jacob, now comes to light. Right here in Exodus 32, the Levites are divided away from their brothers of Israel. That is, they're divided in Jacob. Remember, Israel, Jacob, synonymous words. Okay. And then those violent natures okay, are to be put to good use as they kill many of the calf worshippers, many of them their own children. And the second part of Jacob's prophetic blessing, whereby Levi will be scattered in Israel, is going to occur at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness when the land of Canaan gets divided up among the tribes of Israel. But guess what? The Levites don't get any land. Instead, they're going to be scattered throughout the territories of the other tribes, and they're going to be given 48 cities to live in, but under the charity, if you would, of the various tribal authorities. They're going to be scattered in Israel. I think it's also interesting that the Levites, many of whom are about to become the priests, will also be the ones who deal with blood and killing on a daily basis. But this time, it's going to be sacrificial blood. You see, killing that God calls just is not murder. But killing outside of what God calls just is murder. God creates all life. How he ends it is entirely his to choose. What the Levites did at Shechem was unjust. It was murder. And they were under God's curse for doing it. But when they stood by Moses' side, when they obeyed the Lord and they killed those 3,000 people, it was counted to them as a blessing, just as it says at the end of verse 29. The overall fate of the... Levites was not going to change from what Jacob pronounced, but the nature of how it would be manifested did change.
They would indeed deal in blood in killing, but instead of it being unjust killing, meaning against God, it would now be as God's servants carrying out merely justified killing. Killing that even brought justification and atonement before God on behalf of Israel. God declares what is holy. He declares what is just. All else is not. And it's not our position to alter his choices. Well, after the mass execution of the idol worshippers, Moses made it clear that Israel had sinned against the Lord, broken the covenant, and he, as mediator, now needed to approach God to see if there was going to be a way to atone for this corruption and, more importantly, reestablish now, the Mosaic Covenant. Moses climbs back to the summit of the mountain, begs God to blot him out of the book of life forever if that's what's necessary for the people he's been leading to be forgiven of their great sin. And in response, the Lord lays down the principle that a man is responsible for his own sins. And so he declines Moses' offer of his own life, his atonement for Israel's sins. But sin must be punished. There is no alternative. Those 3,000 that were put to the sword by the Levites were just the tip of the iceberg. The number of those who willingly participated in calf worship was much greater. And so God sent a plague as a punishment and many more thousands of Hebrews died of illness. We'll follow Moses back up the mountain next week in chapter 33.